Welcome back. Our guest this week is Ingham County Clerk Barb Byram, who is also co-chair of the Legislative Committee for the Michigan Clerks Association. Our lead stories, every school kid to get 8700 bucks from the state and a possible new Republican candidate for governor. On the OTR panel, Lauren Gibbons, Jonathan Osteen, and Chuck Stokes sit in with us as we get the inside out off the record. Production of Off the Record is made possible in part by the following. Business Leaders for Michigan has a strategic plan to make Michigan a top 10 state in the nation for jobs, personal income, and a healthy economy. Learn more at michigansroadtotop10.com. And now, this edition of Off the Record with Tim Skubik. Thank you very much. Welcome back to Off the Record, a holiday edition. Hope everybody is enjoying this uh, beautiful summer. <laughs> what size arc do you have? I guess I should ask. Now, we got a great panel with us. We got Chuck, we got Jonathan, and we got Lauren. And Lauren, let's start with you. The Michigan legislature, lo and behold, uh, met the deadline of July 1st by sending a $17 billion school aid bill to the governor, who will sign it. And of course, everybody's focused on that 8700 bucks for each school child. This is a historic vote. Is it not? Yeah, absolutely. And it, uh, it's a 10% bump from where we are currently. And it also closes the gap between uh, the higher funded and the lower funded districts. That's been a priority for a lot of lawmakers and school groups for quite some time. So uh, this, is, this is a big vote. Um, this is a big decision. And uh, it does appease a lot of the school districts that were really hoping to have some clarity from the legislature prior to them needing to set their budgets, which is a little bit sooner uh, than the legislature technically has to. Um, so the education budget is settled. There's still a lot of questions out there about other state departments and what the state will do with a lot of other uh, federal stimulus money and extra revenue. But you know, the schools is a really big piece and uh, that was indeed settled yesterday. Chuck, they teach us in, uh, in school that the legislative process is sometimes very slow. Try 1994 that they started to try to close this funding gap between the rich and the closed districts. It couldn't get much slower, but this is a, this is a, uh, this is a plus for education and for the people of Michigan. Yeah, no doubt about it. I think Lauren summed it up really well. Um, this starts to really close that gap significantly both sides have wanted it for their various reasons and their various interests uh, and hats off to all sides, you know, whether it's the superintendents keeping the pressure on, it's the MEA, it's the business community, um, it's the parents uh, saying, look, we want Michigan to be a top 10 state. We aren't there yet by most people's standards, but you can't get there if you don't have the proper funding that everyone needs. This is really important to the superintendents, as Lauren mentioned, because they can now sit down and they can do their budgets. They don't have to guess about how much money they and they can allocate things in the right way. And hopefully that trickles down to make things really good in terms of schools and education and the education that everybody needs. Uh, no doubt about it, the governor is going to sign it, but even though this was a huge part of the budget, $17 billion, there are a lot of other areas that still have to be ironed out, but they got it done, they got it done on time, and it doesn't go to some of those spikes that we've seen in the past that have really been 
very partisan and very nasty. Jonathan, the potential fly in the ointment here is that they are using basically COVID dollars to fund the first year of closing the gap. And the question is, will they have the money in out years to keep that gap closed? And when I talked to Wayne Schmidt, who chairs the Senate K-12 through committee, he said they're going to keep that gap closed with economic growth. Yeah. What do you think about that? Well, the good news for Senator Schmidt is that the economy is growing. So indeed, there could be some extra revenue. There usually is uh, year over year. Um, politically, I think it'd be very difficult for them to walk this back at any point. But you're certainly right. I mean, the budget um, is not complete, Tim. Just the education portion is done. They didn't meet that July 1 deadline for the full budget. Uh, but uh, in addition to this $17 billion they approved for the next fiscal year, um, they had also uh, already approved $4.4 billion last week in federal relief funding that's going to help schools, you know, um, prepare remediation programs to help students catch up uh, for learning losses during the pandemic and, and take other safety measures heading into next school year. So schools are going to be flush with cash next year. They're going to be able to make a lot of investments they've been putting off uh, potentially four years uh, and, um, you know, sort of have the state uh, on a better um you know, on a better level heading into 2022 than when, uh, again, this discussion will have to come up of how to fund a lot of this stuff long term. Lauren, let's get into the weeds just a little bit on a little interparlor game that is going on between the Senate Republicans and the House Republicans. This is a brand new storyline. Instead of Republicans beating up the Democratic governor, Republicans are at odds with one another. And I'm namely talking about the chair of the House Appropriations Committee and Mr. Stamas, the chair of the Senate Committee. There was a little game playing going on yesterday, was there not? Yeah, absolutely. And we saw even last week uh, the House and the administration had worked out a, a deal that ultimately was pretty similar to what the Senate uh, agreed to. But yes, uh, there's there's definitely some tension between those two. I think that contributed perhaps to the fact that we did not get a full budget yesterday. Um, initially, the House was intending to do a basic across the board budget uh, for all the other state departments, and then a supplemental could be figured out at a later date so they could technically meet that July 1st statutory deadline. Uh, that didn't happen. They did get the education through. Uh, there was also uh, some, some scuffling over uh, getting statutory revenue sharing uh, through. And, and so those conversations were ongoing. But yeah, there's, there's definitely some tension there uh, that may not have you know, necessarily come to light before the last couple of weeks. Well, Jonathan, one of the things that the Senate did to the House yesterday, this is a little tweak, okay? This is to get your attention. They passed their bill and they adjourned. The gentleman and gentle lady courtesy is one House will wait for the other body to take up what that the Senate took up. They just got out in their cars and drove home, basically leaving the House with no alternative but to buy the Senate plan. That's not the kind of legislative courtesy that uh, greases the wheels, throws uh, sawdust in the wheels, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's an acknowledgement that they didn't think the deal was going to be complete uh, this week. Um, otherwise, they would have stuck around to try and negotiate further. That said, the House pretty much did the same thing to them, to the Senate last week. They struck a deal with the governor, they passed the budget, and they sent it over to the Senate with only one session they left in the year and said, well, you basically have no choice to pass this. 
Well, the Senate didn't pass it. Uh, this July 1 deadline, you'll recall uh, the legislature and Whitmer agreed to that in 2019 after a really disastrous budget year. And this is not that yet. Um, that was, of course, the year that the legislature uh, refused Whitmer's gas tax then sent her a budget she didn't like and she went on a veto spree. Uh, we're not there yet. <laughs> That's the good news. Um, but uh, the, the July 1 deadline was set in statute, but it was uh, let's face it, it was a farce. I mean, there were there are no penalties attached to uh, <laughs> missing that deadline. So they did so without consequence this week. Um, and uh, the real deadline remains uh, the start of the new fiscal year, October 1. That's uh, in the state constitution. So there's not a lot of wiggle room on that one. Yeah, everybody's on break now till uh, July 15th. All right, so Chuck, give me your first reaction to the possibility, underscore the possibility that a guy named Mike Cox might run for Republican governor. What do you think, man? <laughs> A blast from the past. There you go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he, he certainly made a name for himself. He comes from, you know, the Detroit Wayne County area, uh, served as attorney general. Uh, so, you know, he's won and run statewide before, but he's been out of the political loop. He's been practicing corporate law. Uh, but his wife certainly, you know, was, had made a name for herself as party chair, um, you know, up until this last election. Uh, you know, it's it's a name out there. I mean, clearly, Republicans are fishing, trying to figure out what's going to be the best combination to go up against Governor Whitmer. And they're going to have to find someone that one can win that primary and then be ready for the general. Uh, and to get someone that has name recognition certainly helps. But everybody's going to need a refresher, of course, especially some of the young people in terms of who is Mike Cox. Uh, Jonathan, the uh, the story is being reported today that there has been an outreach from some, quote, Trump people in Washington, D.C., who called Mr. Cox to talk about this. Also, an outreach from the Republican Governors Association reaching out to him. He obviously has not made a decision, but his major problem here is he is the lead attorney on this University of Michigan lawsuit over alleged sexual abuse at the University of Michigan and Dr. Uh, Anderson, and he can't very well leave those clients high and dry to run for governor. The optics on that would be ugly. So if this case is finished quicker than he maybe expects, maybe by the end of the year, he could still get in this thing. But what's your first reaction to a possible Cox candidacy? Well, unless or until James Craig, the retired Detroit police chief, uh, does officially enter the campaign for governor, the Republicans are going to keep trying to turn over a lot of leaks to find, um, you know, more of a mainstream candidate than, than some of the, the candidates who have so far announced. Now, I'm it's my understanding that Craig is starting to build the campaign staff and all signs point him running for governor. Uh, and if he does, I don't think somebody like Mike Cox is going to uh, propose a serious challenge to him. Mike Cox, of course, ran for governor before and in, in 2010 and, and did not win the GOP nomination. Um, for those, uh, you know, who are interested in political drama, that, you know, a Cox campaign would certainly bring it, though. I mean, recall that Laura Cox, uh, as 
as she left the Michigan Republican Party, basically set fire to it on her way out the door. She accused the incoming chair, Ron Weiser, of essentially paying off a candidate to drop out of a previous race. Uh, and Mike Cox was on social media defending her and spreading those same allegations. So um, it'd be really fascinating to see uh, whether Republicans, uh, establishment Republicans, would back a Mike Cox candidacy, given that he's openly feuded with the current elected officials of the Michigan Republican Party. Lauren, uh, Mr. Cox, if he does get in, would certainly have the stomach to take on the former chief of police, Detroit, uh, who would like to be anointed by some. But it appears that the anointment uh, is a little mushy, isn't it? Yeah, I think there's still a lot of factors to be determined. And I agree with Jonathan that uh, having him in the race would uh, would really have Cause some drama, I think. Um, and I think the Republican Party still has a lot to figure out in terms of how to move forward uh, from the 2020 election cycle. As Chuck mentioned, uh, you know, Mike Cox has been out of the game for a long time and it's going to be, um, you know, if, if he does decide to look seriously into a campaign, uh, he'll have to make a lot of decisions on where he wants to fall on on certain issues like the election and, you know, whether he thinks the party should go the direction that uh, that Trump Republicans would like to see. So um, I, I think it would be I think it would be fascinating. Um, but I think, yeah, there's still there's still quite a bit of time uh, before um, before the 2022 election to, you know, see see some drama play out here. All right, Chuck, very quickly, before we call in our guest today, the governor is announcing today, as we're taping on Thursday before the holiday, that uh, uh, there, there's an old statement, if they build it and they don't come, bribe them. <laughs> that appears to be what she's trying to do. She's taking a page from Governor DeWine over in Ohio, uh, her next door neighbor, uh, Republican governor over there, but it's worked. Uh, and so, you know, governors aren't abashed about taking a good idea from anybody that appears to be working, regardless of political party. Um, in Ohio, it has helped to boost the number of vaccination rates, and she's hoping that it'll do the same there. Um, everybody's concerned about it, and Governor Whitmer, I'm sure, is getting messages from Washington uh, with President Biden saying, look, July 4th is right around the corner. We want to hit that 70% or get as close to it as we can. Uh, and if it will work, we're at what, 61% roughly right now? Well, we're still a little ways from that 70%. Um, will, will it make people do it? Sure, they'll do it. You know, let's say money is, uh, uh, is you know, is the, the mother of all milk, I guess, whatever you want to <laughs> well, There's mixing your metaphors. Jonathan, yeah, what's, the, really, yeah. <laughs> what's the carrot to get people under the tent to, uh, to get shot? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, you know. we don't know the exact details yet, but it sounds like, uh, as you mentioned, $5 million total money with uh, various prizes uh, being billed out at around $55,000 each. So this is not the you know $1 million lottery that Ohio offered. Um, it is interesting. Um, Whit Governor Whitmer said you know months ago when Ohio started doing this that state law precluded Michigan from doing something similar. It sounds, and we're, we're waiting for details today, but it sounds like this is going to be a, a private-public partnership with some, uh, you know, outside 
groups uh, in firms like Meyer and the United Way that might be helping to make this program a reality. But um, clearly, Michigan is not going to meet the 70% um, vaccination goal by July 4. We've been right around you know 60 to now close to 62% for several weeks. Uh, something like 3.5 million people here who are eligible have not gotten it. Um, we're, we're averaging about 45,000 people a week. That's down from about 24 thousand in early May. So there are some people who are never going to get the vaccine. We've seen polling that shows that. But the hope here is that this moves the people in the middle, you know, maybe those folks who are open to it, uh, but for one reason or another, haven't decided to actually get the shot yet at this point. All right, let's call in our guest today, the Ingham County Clerk, Barb uh, Byram. And Ms. Byram, uh, you are very concerned about the Republican efforts to change election laws. They call it reform. You guys are calling it uh, suppression of the vote. Uh, let's assume that they send the stuff to the governor. Let's assume that she vetoes it. Let's assume that they start a petition drive. Are there private conversations going on behind the scenes on, from your people, uh, not the Clerks Association, but others, to counteract this petition drive and the ballot proposal? Fill me in on what's going on. Yeah, thank you so much, Tim, for having me. Um, I've never done your show, so this is quite an honor. Um, first, I'm not here representing the Michigan Association of County Clerks. I happen to be the co-chair um, with uh, two Republican colleagues. But when we're talking about uh, uh, the initiative that could happen if the governor is forced to veto this suppression legislation, this is me just as a person that happens right. to know quite a bit about election law. So I am of the opinion, I've had conversations that if this uh, voter suppression legislation is given to the governor for her signature, she may sign, she may, she may not. Um, but if she decides not to sign it and vetoes it, the um, people of, of similar beliefs as me um, are prepared to fight this with education and an on the ground battle. Uh, because voter suppression is not okay. Eliminating people's access to the ballot is anti-democratic, and it's really unfortunate that the Michigan legislature has decided to go this route like many other states in our nation. M Madam Clerk, can we report then that there is a strategy taking shape behind the scenes to counteract this petition drive to defeat it? I am confident that there is a strategy. strategy. Um, I'm not in the room of the, where the decisions are being made in that regard. But I am confident that people and organizations will be prepared to take on this in, in the event that there is a ballot initiative. Lauren. Um, Clerk Byram, I'm very curious uh, to hear your thoughts on how Michigan's uh, proposal compares to what has uh, been debated and in some states passed around the country. Obviously, this is not a new concept. We're seeing states uh, take up similar legislation. You know, where does Michigan fall in terms of in terms of what's being proposed? So what's being proposed in Michigan is the most extreme voter suppression than we have seen in any other state in our nation. Um, the Michigan Association of County Clerks has come out in opposition of many of the uh, legislative initiatives, the legislative proposals, um, mainly because the legislature never even bothered to consult election administrators prior to introducing this le legislation and passing it. I recall just recently we received a substitute bill less than 12 hours before it was in committee and voted on. So the, uh, the association has come out in a in opposing most of the bills, um, 
mainly because we know our elections are safe and secure. We know how to make our elections even more secure. It's unfortunate that the Republican leadership has focused on the big lie and, and, and using that as a reason to legislate disenfranchisement rather than working with election administrators, Democrats and Republicans, to make our elections even more safe and secure. Chuck? Uh, Madam Clerk, uh, the one part of this that seems to be getting a tremendous amount of attention is the signature signing on this. Uh, what troubles you most about that? The proponents of it say, look, you know, what's discriminatory about going in and showing your ID and writing your signature down? So right now, when you are voting in person, because we're talking about voting in person, you show your photo ID. Michigan is a photo ID state. If you don't have your photo ID, you sign an affidavit that you are who you say you are under penalty of perjury. This initiative will add to that a signature and take away the signature verification that we see local clerks, not county clerks, city and township clerks, or their deputies verifying signatures for absentee ballots. We're taking that and putting signature verification in the hands of precinct workers, um, individuals who have not had to uh, match signatures or check signatures prior. And we're what we're ultimately going to do is make the voting experience for, for election day voting experience significantly delayed because now you're you're adding on additional unnecessary requirements you have a subjective um a review of signatures by precinct workers who have not had to do that prior you're making the voting um longer and ultimately you're going to see lines if this goes into effect and that is very concerning because if you are a single parent working two jobs need to run in real quick vote your ballot you're going to see that line and you're going to say real quick isn't an option. And, and that's one way you're going to disenfranchise voters. Jonathan? Uh, well, one of the big news stories this week in Lansing is what didn't happen. The Senate did not take up that modified voter ID bill that would have added a signature requirement to it. It looks like they might end up stripping that out if, if and when they pass it. So if this reverts to its old form, that's just a strict voter ID proposal with no option for an affidavit, as you mentioned. Uh, what's wrong with that? I mean, Republicans who support this plan are quick to point out, and they're right, that a lot of polling shows that voters in Michigan and across the country generally like the idea of having to show an ID to vote. Uh, what is the problem with that, Clerk Byron? Yeah, thank you, Jonathan. So the problem with that is Michigan's already a photo ID state. We already require photo ID. If someone doesn't have their photo ID, they sign an affidavit under penalty of perjury that they are who they say they are, so they vote a regular ballot. In this legislation, it will require provisional ballots um, if the individual doesn't have their photo ID. A provisional ballot, which then that voter has to go back to their local city or township clerk to prove their identity somehow. And prove their identity with a driver's license, a Michigan ID. But also keep in mind, many uh, local clerks are not open Monday through Friday, eight to five. So what, what happens to that rural voter in that rural township who just didn't have their photo ID for whatever the case may be on election day? Now they're trying to gain access to their local clerk's office that's open just a few hours a week. 
and they had just come off election. So that clerk might be taking the day after the election or the following days off. So it's disenfranchising that rural voter or that city voter from proving their identity because the clerk's office might not be open. And that's not acceptable. If we want to secure the vote, talk to elections election administrators. We have ideas. Don't pass unnecessary enhanced voter ID legislation. Some of the most uh, difficult legislation and suppressive legislation that we have seen in the nation. Well, you said it was the most extreme, but it, to refresh my memory, I don't believe the language is in this Republican proposal that would deny uh, water to people standing online. That one's not in there, is it? I think they might have forgotten to add that one, quite honestly, because the legislation they have introduced is all that heritage legislation. So maybe that one just slipped their mind. All right. Well, is there any part of this package that you say, yes, you've got it right? Well, you know, I have to point out that Senator McBroom came out with his report and yes, he got it right. Seven months later, but he got it right. The election was safe and secure. I don't personally agree with his recommendations. I do agree with his decision and his uh, the outcome of the report that, yes, they got it right. The election was safe and secure. Some of the things that the Michigan Association of County Clerks agrees with is the pre-registration. Some of that, those things that we have been asking for for years, allowing county clerks to mark a voter who has uh, who has passed away, allow us to mark that in the qualified voter file. Death certificates are filed with the county clerk. We're one of the first to know. And that would uh, streamline and make it, it more efficient uh, voter roll maintenance. Do you find it inconsistent that the Michigan voters last time out voted 67 percent for election reforms and the Republicans are back allegedly trying to undo that? Are you willing to say that? Um, I don't think it's inconsistent. I think it's it's that's the Republicans mantra. They are disenfranchising voters. They don't care that we as voters supported no reason absentee voting, same day voter registration, access to the ballot. The voters wanted access to the ballot. It is not surprising that the Republicans have come in and introduced all of this voting vote, voter restrictive legislation because they are having trouble fielding good candidates and having good ideas. So they are decreasing the number of people who can hold them accountable. Ms. Byron, what are you going to run for after your county clerk? You know, I was just elected. Uh, I was very fortunate to be reelected as county clerk, and I look forward to continuing to serve the people of Bingham County, but also standing up for election administrators and the integrity of our elections. So you want to run for Congress? I want to focus on Ingham County and pushing back against the big lie. You're sounding like your mom. <laughs> No, like which, mother, like daughter. Which is a compliment. Rep uh, I was going to say, Representative and Madam Clerk, thank you for doing our program. Also, our thanks to Jonathan and Lauren and Chuck Stokes. See you next week. Everybody have a safe weekend. See you right here on Off the Record. Production of Off the Record is made possible in part by the following. Business Leaders for Michigan has a strategic plan to make Michigan a top 10 state in the nation for jobs, personal income, and a healthy economy. Learn more at michigansroadtotop10.com. For more Off the Record, visit WKAR.org. Michigan Public Television stations have contributed to the production costs of Off the Record with Tim Skubik.